Good morning, everybody. Welcome. How many uh, just love taking a deep breath of fresh air outside this morning? Uh, this morning, we're going to be in Psalm 133, as Matt read. Will you guys give Matt a hand this morning for reading that passage for us so eloquently? Perfect. Thanks, Matt. Uh, we've been going through the Psalms over the last, started the last week, and we will over the next few weeks. And really, before we get back into Matthew, I wanted to just kind of take a few weeks to observe these songs of ascent, these songs that were sung by the people of God, these pilgrims, these pilgrims of the Lord as they're making their way into Jerusalem three times a year for these feasts in Jerusalem. These were the songs that they would sing. And as I was thinking about this this week, uh, I don't know about you, but I realized that we have this kind of perpetual problem taking really great things in our lives totally for granted, don't we? We underestimate the value of things and we assume that, that what is good is sort of always available to us. It'll always be there. I can remember flying on an airplane when I was a kid and sitting in the window seat and being enamored by the fact that we were flying. Anybody have those sentiments? Like you just wanted to sit in the window seat, right? Look out the plane, bask in the fact that you're above the clouds, stare out the window, wonder how all of it worked. And I was excited for the takeoffs. I was excited to get above the clouds. And now when I fly years later, I don't really care where I sit. I'd rather not have a window seat. I'd rather be in the aisle. Uh, and I just want it to go by as fast as possible. So I put on my headphones, uh, I watch a movie, whatever I can do, read, so that I can just get through the flight. And it's just a wonder that becomes sort of commonplace to us and not interesting anymore. And so we're, we're often surrounded by good gifts that we take for granted. I mean, if you got up this morning and you took a shower and you had hot running water, that was a gift. How amazing is that? That the majority of the world may not have what it is that you partook in this morning. How amazing is that? We, we have clothing options, right? I mean, do you ever think about the fact that God had, uh, or we have, we have clothing options, meaning like when you go out in the rain, you could wear a jacket to protect you and make you comfortable in the season that you're in. This morning, I got up and it was like, it feels kind of cool outside, so I'm going to wear sleeves. I haven't had sleeves on in months. I mean, what an awesome thing that we have the opportunity to partake in these gifts, these blessings that we have. And the interesting thing, I don't know if you guys ever think about this, but the fact that we even have food options. I mean, like God could have sort of looked at food and decided that we were going to be sustained by some sort of like gray gelatin, right? You're going to eat gray gelatin three times a day and that's going to sustain you. But instead, we have like this plethora of food that we get to choose from. What an amazing thing. For those of us that have lived around here long enough in North Idaho, it's really easy for us to take this area for granted that we live in until you actually start hearing people comment on how beautiful it is. And, and then you begin to realize it's, it's too easy for the wonder that we had with these surroundings to be taken for granted. I often like get on my bike nowadays and I go right around the lake and I just think to myself, like, I grew up here and I don't think I took it all in. I think I just kind of skated by and I didn't stop to observe what it is, this gift that we have in the area that we live in. And sadly, I would guess that one of our greatest regrets 
is there, there are so many times that we can actually take the Lord Jesus Christ for granted himself. We, we underestimate his glory. We underestimate his value. I mean, thank God for weekly gatherings of the saints where we get to partake in this time together, where we come together to actually behold Jesus. We come together to remember Jesus, and we're strengthened by his grace. We're reminded of what only he can do in our lives and through our lives. But I want to suggest that one of the greatest blessings in a church that can easily be taken for granted is actually the unity that exists within the church. When it's functioning in our relationships, when unity is kind of firing on all cylinders, we definitely sense the benefits of unity. We, we sense that things are working and it feels like it gels. Like, but I think we're tempted to simply assume that this is just what church looks like. And then we begin to take it for granted because when unity crumbles and relationships fall apart, then we see just how valuable unity actually was. And so when we experience relational stress and bitterness and division in our lives, I can truly think of nothing more awful to happen in the church, maybe even worse than persecution coming from outside the church to the church. But when enemies arise within the church, how terrible is that? when there's a breakdown in the unity that Jesus bled and died for for us. And I don't believe that God wants us to take the unity among believers for granted. And so the, the Lord speaks to us through his word. Our psalm this morning talks about the blessing of unity. And it sort of reveals this beauty and wonder of unity among the people of God so that we don't take unity for granted. So look at Psalm 133. And I challenge you to pay really close attention this morning as we read these words. It says, Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. Behold, look, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It's like the precious oil on the head, running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. It's like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion, for there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. God doesn't want us to take unity for granted or, or underestimate unity, the value of unity, or assume that unity will always be present. God actually wants us to enjoy it. He wants us to protect it. He wants us to press into it as a unified church that glorifies him and communicates the reality of who Jesus is to the world that is watching us. Our unity does that. And so I have three points this morning that, that I want, uh, that have to do with unity amongst believers that I want to kind of camp out in. The first one is this, is that unity is a gift that we get to enjoy. The second is that unity is a treasure that we need to protect. And the third thing is that unity is a message that we actually have to communicate. So first, this gift to enjoy. If you guys look in your Bibles, there's probably a little title above the psalm, and it says, Songs of Ascent. And what that means is that this is one of the songs that these Jewish pilgrims sang together as they trekked together to Jerusalem three times a year, this capital city of Israel, the, the focal point of the promised land, as they make their way, their pilgrimage to the city of Jerusalem. This is what the psalm's about, the, this unified people singing together as they make their way to Jerusalem. And it says, behold, look, direct your attention on what? On the picture of family, specifically, he says, 
Brothers dwelling together in unity, living together in harmony. David says how good and pleasant that is. Isn't it amazing when we see this? That This is a given that we all know how good and pleasant it is when you see a family living within unity. I mean, I mean, how gnarly and ugly is it when you see siblings fight? Anybody see that on a regular basis in your homes? I would guess that there's some of you in this room who know what it's like to have a full-time job keeping your kids off one another, right? But conflict, conflict creates this tension and it creates this painful vibe in the home. Like it tears the home apart. And so David, the author of the psalm, is using this analogy of sibling unity, brothers coming together, and he's applying it to all the people of God. Like in verse two and three, King David sort of unpacks how good and pleasant this unity or this harmony is, truly, how, it, how, how amazing it is. And, and he uses these examples that are quite like Jewish in nature, right? He says, verse two, it's like oil running down on the head and the beard and the clothes. If you're anything like me, you probably read that and think that doesn't sound like much of a blessing at all, does it? Oil literally just pouring down you, like down your head, and I don't have to worry about the beard, but I do worry about the clothes. It sounds nasty. And I promise that if you, if you run up to me after service this morning with a nice big bottle of olive oil and you begin to pour it down my head so that it can run down my sketchy beard and my clothes, I'm gonna be ticked off. Like, it's not a blessing. I don't want you to do that. So what is he talking about when he talks about this? Well, when, when a priest was appointed to serve the Lord in the tabernacle and then the temple, he, he was first anointed with oil, and it wasn't just any oil. Exodus 30 describes this very specific oil, that it was a sacred oil. It was made of precious and costly ingredients mixed with olive oil. And this sacred and holy anointing oil was then poured over the head of the priests. And this anointing, this pouring of the oil over the priests actually set the priests apart for the service of God. They were different as a result of this anointing. They were being set apart. And so David's saying that the goodness and pleasantness of godly unity is like the precious oil running down the head of the priest. It was doing something to set them apart, running down his beard all over Aaron's robe, who's sort of the representative of this priesthood. In other words, unity is in sort of like excessive, overflowing blessing on the people of God. Because as the oil sort of enveloped the priest, this is the, the connection he's making, so that this goodness and, and the pleasantness of God, like unity envelops the people of God with his blessing. It literally envelops us. Verse three, he says, it's like the dew of Mount Hermon. And Mount Hermon was the highest mountain, is the highest mountain located in the northern region of Israel. It actually gets snow there. There's a ski resort there. People can go up there at least, I think Dan said, like a week, a year, they can actually ski on Mount Hermon in northern Israel, just south of Lebanon. And the dew of Mount Hermon falling on the mountains of Mount Zion, which is like 120 miles south, much lower, much drier, and he says that the goodness of, of godly unity is like this dew, like this life-giving moisture 
on Mount Hermon that's watering the dry mountains of Zion. That Zion was this place where the priests gathered together, where they offered up blood sacrifices to a God to, to God to atone for the sins of Israel. Like it is the pinnacle of Christianity is Mount Zion. Psalm 48 says, great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God, his holy mountain, beautiful in elevation, is the joy of all the earth, Mount Zion in the far north, the city of the great king. And so David is saying that godly unity is like this life-giving dew that sort of rejuvenates, that, that strengthens the place where God and man meet together in this mountain. Some of you know me decently, some of you don't know me at all, so I'm going to give you a glimpse into my life this morning, a little insight into my likes and dislikes. Something you need to know about me, I don't really like to camp. Um, I actually really dislike camping, and I know that's like blasphemy in North Idaho, right? You don't like to camp. In fact, like a lot of you moved here so you could camp, but let me explain this, because there's one reason that I don't like camping. There's one reason. I love everything about camping. I love being outside, I love going on hikes, I, I love fires, I love staying up late around the fire, but it's the sleeping that I hate. Like I absolutely hate sleeping in a tent. Like we didn't camp much uh, 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 as I was a kid. My, my parents didn't, like it just wasn't an activity that we did a lot of. And I heard one comedian say one time it was because my parents loved me that they didn't take me camping. But the reason that I hate camping is sleeping. Because you're trying to get to sleep and, and being uncomfortable all night long, there's insects like buzzing all around you, there's potential, potential serial killers off in the woods, right? They're lurking around, there's crackling of twigs, there's all this sketchy stuff. You know something's lurking in the woods and it's waiting to pounce on you. But other than that, camping is just awesome, isn't it? It's the part that I can't get past. Like, I hate that, but here's the deal. I actually do go camping because Jesus told me to lay my life down for my wife, right? And she likes to camp, and so I do it. But one of the things about camping that I love is when you get up early in the morning and the sun's just starting to rise, and for me, you actually never get up. You've stayed up all night long. <laughs> the sun's just coming up, right? And uh, you're just like, oh, Lord. Please let it get light so I don't have to live in this hole anymore. Um, but you like get up in the morning, you go sit in your camp chair around the fire, and you begin to watch the sun come up. And I love it when you get to look around in the morning and see like the grass and the vegetation around you covered in those dewdrops. Like there's something so sweet about that when you see that happen. It's amazing. And, and unity. It's, it's amazing. Unity, it's life-giving. They're on, on God's holy mountain, that holy place for the people of Israel. There, they meet with their God, and it's there that you read, the Lord has commanded his blessing. And then what's he say? Life forevermore. Eternal life. I mean, that's quite the blessing, eternal life. And so wrapped up in the life-giving and the, the holy realities of God's kingdom is the blessing of unity. But I want you to listen this morning. that They knew something about the blessing of unity. But the crazy thing for us is that we know even more. We know even more about this blessing of unity. 
We know something even greater than the Old Testament saints that sang the song. They, they knew in part by the sacrifices of the priests that would cover the sin by these sacrifices that were offered on this mountain flowing from that place in Zion. They knew how good and pleasant godly unity actually was. But they perceived dimly what we can actually see clearly this side of the cross. That unity was so much better. That there was a massive price that Jesus paid so that we could actually have this unity because we know how God actually created this unity amongst his people. And he blessed his people with this gift. And so Ephesians 2 says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who are once far off had been brought near by the blood of Jesus Christ for he himself is our peace who has made us both one. I should hear the largest amen ever after that passage. By the blood of Jesus, he's literally brought us together and he's made us one in the flesh through his death by bearing our sin, by absorbing God's wrath, by reconciling God to man and man and man together. Like he didn't just reconcile us to himself, he gave us the gift of being reconciled together. But in order for us to understand like how amazing this gift is and how good and pleasant it is that we actually experience unity in his church, you have to understand that this is a gift from God purchased by Jesus so that we don't take it for granted. It's amazing. We need to celebrate unity. We need to have gratitude and be grateful for it whenever we see it because whenever we're able to observe the goodness of unity in the church, we're literally witnessing the grace of God. Do you know that? You're literally witness a front row seat to the grace of God as we watch him unify. Because we're actually witnesses to the God of the universe that's commanding his blessing into that moment. Like, is that not just amazing? We actually should expect it wherever the gospel's preached, wherever people believe. We're so much more than a group of people with a similar interest this morning. So much more. And I think in light of the unity that Jesus purchased for us, there should be gratitude and there should be humility towards one another. There should be an honoring of one another. Psalm 133 is sort of this, this window into this biblical view of unity, but there's more. Because unity also is this treasure that we need to fight to protect. So in light of Psalm 133, we, we understand how good and how pleasant this unity is. How blessed this gift of, gift of unity is. But again, it's so easy to take this for granted because it's this gift given to us by God wherever the gospel's proclaimed wherever the gospel is believed. And it's also this treasure that we have to work hard to protect and preserve because God doesn't leave us wondering how we do this. But the Bible is literally littered with passages that prescribe unity, that teach us how to protect it, how to preserve it, how to promote it. First Peter 3, 8, 9 says, finally, listen to this, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, listen to this, brotherly love, a tender heart, a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or, or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. Listen to this, bless. For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. 
And I actually think that this one verse could keep us busy for the rest of our lives, huh? And so look at the command, that all of you have unity of mind. And if it was just automatic for us, then this command isn't needed. But I think we should feel some level of caution and concern for the part that each one of us plays in the bigger picture of unity in his church. Because there's literally temptations all around us to lose ourselves in the sin that destroys us, that takes us out at the knees. That there are temptations all around us to give in to things that destroy and break down unity in God's church. Unforgiveness, cynicism, hardened hearts towards others. These are like the deadly poisons to the unity that Jesus bought for the church. And it can sort of look like self-righteousness, and it can look like a critical spirit that sort of masquerades as though we're speaking from a viewpoint of wisdom and concern, right? I just have wisdom and concern. But what's scary is that these things can go underground, and really the, the unity killers are things like gossip and slander and arrogance and conceit and isolation and distance, like hallmarks of our Western culture. So we should be concerned and careful if any of these things are present in our lives this morning. We should be aware of God's view of this. Proverbs 6, 16 through 19. There's six things that the Lord hates. Seven that are an abomination to him. He says, haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, so feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and then listen to this one, one who sows discord among brothers. God hates it. It's an abomination to him, one who sows discord amongst brothers. William Plumer was a 19th century pastor, and in his commentary on the Psalms, he says this, Remember that it's only the devil and his children who hate peace and indulge malice. If you would not be like the wicked one, shun his temptations. And here's the reality is that Satan is the accuser of the brethren. We know that. And when we find ourselves in that place, we're literally acting like him. Honestly, like I am beyond grateful for the church that Jesus has built right here in Coeur d'Alene at Anthem. I'm, I'm beyond grateful for the ways I watch you guys love one another. Like, I, I don't rejoice more than when I'm sitting front row in that seat and I hear you guys singing to Jesus. Like, there's part of my heart that just leaps because I'm like, yes, like, sing. Give him the honor and glory due his name. There's nothing that gets me more stoked than watching you interact with one another and hearing the stories about you, how you care for one another and you love one another and you walk with each other through hard times. And I hear from people all the time about how they feel a sense of unity, a sense of family in our church. And it's a real blessing for me to hear, but what we, we can't be tempted to think that it can't happen here. Because unity actually can be destroyed overnight. Like I've literally watched it happen in the most loving and unified places. And my challenge to us is that we need to be careful Maybe you're aware of something that's lingering in your heart this morning. Maybe there's bitterness in your heart. Maybe there's gossip. Maybe there's sinful criticism that's sort of come from your mouth. 
about others in this church or about other believers. Maybe God's making you aware of those things right now. And and, uh, I'm not saying all of this so that we would feel condemned and leave this place condemned, but I hope that we never think that disunity is above us. That it just can't happen here because we're so unified and this is like family. And maybe this morning God is like graciously showing us something to turn from, to receive his grace this morning. And I hope that we protect this treasure that he's given us, of unity that God's given us. To protect something doesn't mean that we just remove certain things, right? It means we're actually proactive. It's not just an absence of gossip. It's not just an absence of slander. It's not just an absence of self-righteousness. That's why Ephesians 4, 1 through 3 says, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Like, we aren't just called to be open to the idea of unity. We're called to walk in it. We're commanded to this eagerness to maintain and protect unity. It's this treasure that we have, the unity of the Spirit. It's literally a holy thing. We're set apart as a result of what Jesus has done. We're unlike the rest of the world. God is at the center of it. And so we have to approach our unity, as Ephesians 4 says, with all humility and gentleness and patience and bear with one another in love and with eagerness to maintain that unity. And so very practically, What does that look like for us? And I could probably spend two months (laughs) talking about how to practically walk in unity, but I wanna give you a few things that I've been thinking through, things that I know I've struggled with in my own life, things that are so present in Jesus' church today as a result of the times that we're living in that are literally ripping this church apart. First one. When somebody disagrees with you, do the best you can to think the best of their position. Don't give way to undue criticism when there's a disagreement. Watch what you say. I was reading something online that was talking about us being more careful and watching our adjectives and our adverbs and our, and our hyperboles, which I thought was so good. Things like, I'm very concerned, I'm shocked. Like, I got an email one time from somebody with some questions, and it started out with, I'm grieved. And then when I sat down to talk to this person about the email, and we kind of dialogued about it, they admitted, like, that was probably too strong of a word. I was just concerned. And yet, these are the words that we use that actually divide us. Like, these kinds of things distance us from others. They aggravate one another. And what if we just used real words to describe how we actually feel and we always desire to lace our words with gentleness and humility? What if? What if? What would come forth from our mouth? Second thing, don't elevate secondary issues that are debatable and make them into dividing issues. Don't be quick to literally eject out of relationships when things aren't going according to your preferences. 
Be careful not to over-spiritualize issues when it's simply a disagreement. I see people do this all the time. People paint themselves in sort of an awkward corner because they attach like an overly spiritual emphasis to this topic that could just easily be discussed practically, like with humility and with gentleness. And be careful that you're not claiming that this goes against your conscience when it's actually just going against your preferences. There's a difference. Be involved in this church. Like, connect with others in community. And for some of us, we may hear that and say, like, I think I do a pretty good job at unity. And then you don't really connect much with the church. It's like, I'm doing really great with humility until I actually have to be around people. (laughs) Gosh, these are the things that, being real, like I told you guys last week, I want to be as honest as I can through this. These are things that I'm trying to learn, that I'm just feeling very convicted about myself. And so far as it relies on you, be at peace with everyone. Like, that's what eagerness looks like. Like, I have to know when I lay my head down at the end of the day, on a difficult day, when there's been a lot of disagreements or I've had a ton of conversations that I wish I didn't have to have, um, at the end of the day, I have to know that before God, I can humbly say, I believe that I did everything I could for there to be peace that pleases the Lord. Even when conflict arises and it doesn't get resolved. And if we want to understand God's priority for his church, then who better to listen to than Jesus himself? And so when you read John 17, what's often referred to as this high priestly prayer of Jesus. We find Jesus praying himself for all Christians, like those in this room, those around this world, all through all of time. And in verse 20, he, he begins to pray for all who would believe the gospel through the ministry of the, apostle, the apostles. And he says this, I don't ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's us that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. What blows me away about this verse is that Jesus could have prayed for anything in that moment. And what did he pray for? Our unity. Our unity. He says two times in that verse that our oneness in Christ is both for our joy, but also so the world would believe that the Father has sent the Son. And so the the unity of the church communicates the relational oneness of the Father and the Son and the Spirit. And unity communicates that the Father has actually sent the Son. Verse 23, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Like, think about this statement. We're loved the way that the Father loves the Son. How crazy is that? How does the Father love the Son? Perfectly, passionately, devotedly, unceasingly. Do you know that's the exact way that the Father loves you? 
perfectly, unceasingly, devotedly, passionately. And, and unity amongst believers is not just for our good and our blessing. It's actually intended by God to communicate the reality of who Jesus is to the world and to communicate the powerful nature of God's grace. Ray Ortland says this in his commentary on Proverbs, Christ himself dwells in the midst of our unity. Our unity is his cross becoming real in our hearts as we demote self for his sake and exalt him more. By our unity in Christ, we are not just being nice, we're being prophetic. We're saying to all the divisive, selfish idols of this world, Jesus is Lord and you are not. Jesus makes life sweet and you don't. Jesus brings us together and you can't. You have no claim on us here. We belong to the Lord Jesus Christ, the crucified friend of sinners, and we all, and we will have the whole world know it by our strong and joyous unity in our Savior. We're not just called to be nice people. We're literally expressing this strong and joy-filled unity in the Lord Jesus Christ, this crucified friend of sinners, as he says. We want the whole world to know it, and they will know it through our strong and our joy-filled unity that communicates how amazing God is. Like, it communicates the staggering nature of God's grace. Like, in this world that's full of isolation, this world that's full of division, we stand joyfully united as a compelling countercultural people, even as we invite others to come and join us. But unity is not uniformity, right? And I'm not talking about a church full of people who look the same and talk the same and have all the same interests. I'm actually talking about something completely different. It's when a diverse church, people from every level of socioeconomic status, every ethnic background, every political view, they're united under the banner of Christ in love and in unity, and that's what communicates the powerful effect of the grace of God in the lives of sinners like you and me. That's it. Like anyone can get along with people that are the same as them. That is so easy. But when we have strong and joy-filled unity across all the lines that divide everybody else under the banner of Jesus, then we actually communicate this message of God, the message he intends to communicate to the world. And actually what I loved about what Ortland said is that we're being prophetic. Like there's something we're sort of speaking into existence. We're literally prophesying to the world, church. We're saying to all the selfish and divisive idols of this world that Jesus is Lord and you are not. That Jesus makes life sweet and you don't. That Jesus brings together what no other man can that you have no claim on us here. I mean, in Jesus' name, the enemy has no claim on Jesus' church. This is the message given to the church. It's literally the reality of God's grace. And we step into this privilege of communicating that message to the world as we rejoice in the unity, as we protect the unity to this watching world that is constantly looking around because what they're saying is, you guys talk about unity, I've read scriptures on unity. I've been to your churches and I've heard messages on unity and I watch the way you live and you live without it. What does that say about God? And I'll end with this. 
Are you known by others more for what you're against than what you're for in the gospel of Jesus? Just to be real, like my concern in this past year and a half is that we've literally communicated to the world way more about what we're against than what we're for in the gospel. And in doing so, we sort of begin to subtly communicate to the world this message that unity is found in like-minded preferences instead of the grace of God. Which sends this message to the world, I'll just be honest, you don't belong here. You just don't line up with whatever our list of interests and our hobbies are. And I'll close with this last statement, again, from Ray Ortland from this book, The Gospel. The gospel does not hang in midair as an abstraction. By the power of God, the gospel creates something new in the world today. It creates not just a new community, but a new kind of community. Gospel-centered churches are living proof that the good news is true, that Jesus is not a theory, but is real, and he gives back to us our humanness and our doctrine and culture, words and deeds. Such a church makes visible the restored humanity that only Christ can give. So then, back to Psalm 133. Again, it was sung by pilgrims making their way to the city of God three times a year for these feasts. And these pilgrims, as they're moving together, journeying together for days to go take part in these feasts, they're singing together this song. And my challenge for you is this, church. I said this last week. We're on a journey together. There's a holy destination ahead for us. We get to spend this life journeying with one another and singing a song that honors the Lord, that unifies his church, that invites others into relationship with Jesus. And as we make our way to that heavenly city, this new Jerusalem that's spoken of, Zion, how good and pleasant the blessing of unity is. Amen? Praise Jesus for his blessing of unity that only he can do. I want you to stand with me. I'd like to pray for us. Not to call anybody up, but how many of you guys have ever been into a house before where you know that all the husband and wife do is fight constantly, but when people come over for dinner, Everything's put together and it seems like it's all good. And what would we say? That's hypocritical, right? And sometimes I feel like with the church, we preach unity. In fact, we even do our best to try to get along and display unity. But even in doing our best and trying to get along to display it doesn't mean that we actually possess it. My challenge to you this morning is, What's getting in the way of the unifying power of Jesus moving so greatly through your life, your wife too, um, your life, that it not only unites you, reconciles you to God, but it unites you with others in his church. And it sends a message out to all of those that don't know him of who God actually is because the character of God is being displayed through us. What an amazing thing. Would you bow your heads with me? If you're here this morning, you struggle with unity. 
There's people in your life that you've literally been at odds with. Other believers, there's gossip, there's slander, there's all kinds of things that have gone on. There's unforgiveness and resentment in your heart. Like, this morning, I don't want to call you out as much as I just want to say, I think the grace of God wants to just flood over you. Remove that unforgiveness and that resentment and unite you with people that can only unite you by God's grace. You can't be united through a shared hobby or interest. And if you're here this morning, and maybe you just feel inside like God's tugging on your heart to lay something down, to extend a hand, to have a conversation with somebody in order to be somebody who would build unity in the church, protect it, protect the treasure that God's given us and be one that would promote it moving forward. Would you raise your hand and ask for prayer this morning? Thank you. Thank you. You can keep your hands up. I got mine up, both of them. I need it. <laughs> Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you for the unity that only you can build in your church that transcends every material, socioeconomic, political, every issue on this earth. And I pray, God, that you protect us from the divisive ways of the enemy. I pray, Jesus, that just like you are one with the Father, that we would be one with you and one with one another. I pray, Jesus, that the message that our lives would proclaim is a message that we were broken and we were desperate in need of you, Jesus. And by your grace, we were reconciled back to you. And as we live in unity with others, I know that that's not something that comes easy. I know it's something that we have to invite you to step into. And I'm praying by the power of your spirit that you would break in to the most divided situations that exist in this room right now, to the most resentful of hearts, the most unforgiving of hearts in this room, the most hardened of hearts, that the power and the grace of the Almighty God by His Spirit would break into those hearts this morning and begin to grant them forgiveness, begin to grant them understanding, begin to grant them the ability to look past the things that the world and the enemy want to divide us in order to look to you, Jesus, to unite us regardless of the things that divide us here on this earth. I pray, Jesus, for your spirit to go with your church, to move as we leave this place, God, because I know that you're doing a work in and through so many people in this room this morning, and I know that as we leave here that the work continues into our homes and it continues into our workplaces and into the grocery stores and the gas stations and the coffee shops and the restaurants, and I pray, Jesus, that we be a people that are part of a movement allowing Jesus to have his way in us and through us, and you begin to draw people to your yourself, Lord, that they be invited into, that they be ushered into relationship with you, Jesus, so that they can be whole, made whole. They can be set free, Jesus, that they can be released from the bondage that they live in right now so that we can live in ultimate unity with one another as a result of what Jesus did for us on that cross. Bless your church, Jesus, and may we radiate you everywhere we go. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.